Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We're honored to have with us today Professor Edward Larson. Professor Larson holds the U and Hazel Darling Chair in Law and is University Professor of History at Pepperdine University. Professor Larson is the author of numerous works on American history, and he is a recipient of the highly prestigious Pulitzer Prize in History. Today, we will hear about Professor Larson's fascinating book on Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, titled Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership. Thank you again, Professor Larson, for being with us here today. Um, to start off, tell us, please, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Washington and Franklin. Well, I'm a historian, of course, taught history for, for years, for over two decades. And among that, I would... Um, teach the general survey as well as the uh, period that covered the revolution. And when I look at history, I try to look at, try to, when I'm doing the broad sweep of history, what seem to be gaps in the scholarship, because um, I read closely what literature is out there. And there are some historians who take a topic that and because of maybe writing skill, they end up doing a better job with it. But what I tend to look for is where there seem to be gaps or openings. Um, for example, the book that won the Pulitzer Prize was on the Scopes trial, which is a well-known event in American history. Um, but, and is often used as a, as an example of something that changed had a profound future impact. In that case, maybe launching the culture wars or redefining uh, ideas of individual liberty or, or church and state. And yet I had known that there, a historian had never written a book about it. There had been movies and novels and, and uh, short stories and uh, plays, Broadway plays about it, but no historian had ever tackled it. So the idea of tackling it um, using the skills of a historian, well, it ended up working. Nobody had done it before, and it, it attracted a lot of attention and ended up um, receiving uh, the, the Pulitzer Prize with that one. Um, and so I'd gotten involved with some topics in the revolutionary period the same way because I, I teach those. And the first one is actually sort of a blow-by-blow -blow description of the election of 1800. Everybody always heard about that one. It's a big American election, Jefferson versus Adams. But nobody, no historian had ever sort of tackled it on a, at a blow-by-blow -blow level. They dealt with it in concept, but not as practical event. And that ended up winning prizes and getting a lot of attention. And I did another one on George Washington covering the period of his life that nobody ever talks about after he stepped down as general and before he became president called the return of George Washington. And this was similar to that in the sense that I've always been a, a great admirer of both George Washington and of Ben Franklin, two great Americans. Uh, they were universally regarded both at the time and ever after by historians 
as the two most important people in the American Revolution, the two people, the only two people that were indispensable to American independence, both the success of the uh, revolution and then of the Constitution, Constitutional Convention. No one else by any means ever reaches that category. There are other important people, Frank uh, Jefferson or Adams or Hamilton. There's certainly other important people, but nobody's indispensable. Yet both of those people are in it at the time and ever after viewed that way. And yet people, they're never studied together. Um, their books about, logically, their books about Washington and Hamilton or mm-hmm. about Jefferson and, and um, Madison um, those are real hierarchical relationships we all know. And here were two people, both viewed as indispensable. Uh, how did they operate? How did they work together? That was my question. And nobody had ever sort of asked that question. And since leadership is an important issue, it's an important issue in your country, it's an important issue in our country, uh, good leaders make an enormous difference, and certainly Washington and, and Benjamin Franklin uh, personify the idea of good leaders, um, and in sense, their Republican virtue was essential to the founding of the first uh, United States as the first continental republic. Um, how did they work together? And so I j- tackled that question, and the more I tackled it, the more interesting um, their interaction, their interrelationship became, and that that's the story of this book. And, and what was unique? and significant about the Washington-Franklin partnership? Because it really is a unique concept when you talk about two historical figures and put them together as partners. What was the significance of that partnership? It was, well, it's an interesting one to study because here were two people who were basically already giants when they when they went to the second continental congress for example which led to the declaration of independence or when they went to the constitutional convention uh what 12 14 years later in both cases they were the two superstars coming there in both cases they were the two that were greeted with church bells and the uh the whole bit um so they were already, you know, larger-than-life American heroes. Franklin, originally somewhat more so, but both of them larger-than-life American heroes. Um, uh, they were both very comfortable in who they were. They were both very confident, comfortable in their own skin. Um, they didn't have to worry about preeminence, which is, you know, often you have leaders who mm-hmm. want all the glory. And uh, they were both people who easily worked with other people because they were confident in their own their their own position. Um, and so, usually, when you study comparative leadership, you're talking about a hierarchical relationships: Washington and Hamilton. Washington being the president, Hamilton being the treasury secretary, one being the leader, one being the assistant. And how it was only through their pairing that they succeeded in what they did. And that's very true. Uh, Jefferson and Adams would be early examples of those. But there are examples, not just Washington and Franklin, but I would use this as a parallel, of two people of equal stature and equal status who together both are necessary. Neither could have done it alone because they brought different skills about. And a more modern, a 20th century example 
um, for those people who, who are interested in World War II would be Roosevelt and Churchill. I mean, it's inconceivable to think of how the Allies could have fought World War II, how Nazi Germany would have been defeated without both Churchill and Roosevelt. Um, they were both essential, and they worked together incredibly closely, but they both had equal stature and dignity. Neither bossed the other one around, both relied on each other, and that was the sort of relationship you had with, with, um, with uh, Washington and Franklin. When Washington came up to the Constitutional Convention, for example, in uh, 1787, went on that day he arrived, after dropping off his luggage, was to visit Benjamin Franklin and to have, you know, have to spend the afternoon with them to talking about where we're going to go from here. Um, and um, they both had, as again, they both had, even though they were very different, the reason why people don't think them of alike is that even though both were incredibly successful, both had built up enormous wealth through their businesses. Both were very imaginative and creative. You know, Washington was a, a Virginia slaveholder planner, and Franklin was your classic Midland person. He viewed himself, even though he was very wealthy, um, he had come up from literally nothing, literally being an indentured servant, and always viewed himself as, as he called it, a Midland, or we call it a middle class person, because that was his self image. Um, and he, um, he, um, you know, and he was from Quaker. He was an abolitionist. He was from Quaker Philadelphia. So um, he was also a world-renowned writer and practical philosopher and a, a, a pioneering scientist and inventor. Uh, he was just a uh, has he just perceived as so different than this Virginia gentry sort of Washington, and yet because of who they were and because of their mutual respect, they actually got along very well. And both, they were both the same sort of leaders. If you look for traits of leadership, they both listened more than they spoke by their very nature. They both, by their very nature, liked to give credit to others. Neither of them wanted, actually, to be in government. They both preferred being a private citizen. And yet they both had an enormous sense of public duty and public responsibility. And so it was that mixture of traits that they actually did share um, that allowed them to cooperate, work together, listen to each other. Um, neither of them wanted to hog the limelight, but they couldn't avoid it because they were who they were. They were they were um, uh, they were the superstars. They were the only. They were the two most famous Americans uh, in the only two Americans who were known in all the colonies. And of course, they were world famous. They were known throughout Europe. They were lionized. And so, well, what, what, was, what was the age, what was the age difference between them? What was the age difference between them? They were about one generation apart. They were okay. about um, 20, 30 years apart. Um, Washington was younger. But, you know, the odd thing about that is it's sort of unfair to focus on that because Washington always, even when he was a young man, seemed to everybody older than he was. While Ben Franklin, who continued to, you know, be governor of Pennsylvania 
and be active politically till his 80s always seemed younger than he was. And so he was famously once introduced at the, um, I'm trying to remember this, whether this was, it would have been at the, um, I'm not sure whether, I think this was at the Constitutional Convention, but it was true at both, at Second Continent Congress. In both of them, he was the oldest delegate. He was the oldest delegate in 1775 at the Constitutional Convention. He was the oldest delegate um, in 1788. Seven when he went to the um, uh, Constitutional Convention, oldest in both cases. And he was introduced um, that way, but somebody popped his head in. Yes, but he's also the youngest. And that's just the way he was. Well, what, what, what can you point to um, in the partnership that was, that was actually done together as partners, you know, from a practical sense, like if you point to the things that they did as partners together, or, or are you oh, as a practical partnership differently in this case? No, no, they did many things together. Um, uh, and I think you'd have to talk equally about, you'd have to talk about two, because um, and during the revolution, it was military leadership. They they went to the constitutional to the Second Continental Congress um, as the two most experienced military leaders. Um, Franklin had been in charge, the colonel, the top-ranking person during the French and Indian War in Pennsylvania. Um, the Pennsylvania militia was in charge of that. Washington had been the top-ranking official or colonel um, of the Virginia militia. That's how they got to know each other during the French and Indian War in the middle of the. 1750s, because at that time, their two colonies were not just neighbors, they actually had conflicting claims of the Ohio country. And that's where the war primarily focused. And therefore, they were out leading their troops. And so they came, and they both established, they were very different sort of leaders, but they were both successful. And, um, but of course, you were dealing with different sorts of people, you were dealing with, uh, we were dealing with, you know, Pennsylvania was a a sort of a worker's place and uh, his men loved him and Jefferson and, and Virginia was a hierarchical place and his men um, followed him. And um, the, um, and so when they came to Philadelphia, they basically ran the military together. Um, Washington, Franklin proposed that Washington be commander in chief. And then they, before that they were both on the military committees. And then when Washington went off to the commander in chief, uh, Franklin was his, was head of the military commissions. And so they got together often. He would go, uh, Washington, Franklin would go up to the front. They, they both realized that they couldn't work on a volunteer militia army. They needed to build an organized continental force, um, with regular pay and regular uh, structure. So they worked together to create that. And then when Washington, Franklin was, when they declared, when America declared its independence, Franklin also was the most experienced diplomat, and he was sent out to be the diplomat to Europe based in Paris, um, and trying to negotiate because there was no way um, the United States was going to win without um, foreign alliances. And he, and nobody could get them but Franklin. And so he was sent over there and achieved the alliance with France, which was critical, and the loans from France, which were critical. But he also had, once there was alliance, he had to work with Washington to plan the mutual 
um, disposition of troops. So he was there working with the French government, getting the Navy sent over, coming and going. The French Navy wouldn't stay. It would come and go. And the French Army. And so he had to coordinate with Washington. Okay, where do you need the troops? When do you need them? How can I get them? And of course, you had to do that with the time lag because the the the, the messages would take two weeks to get back and forth. And so, for example, the culmination was, of course, the what secured American independence finally, what finally made the British give up was the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown. Well, that was only made possible by the coordination of Washington and Franklin, Franklin arranging for the French Navy to come up from the Caribbean and blockade Cornwallis at Yorktown and the French army coming down. He had to try to trap Cornwallis, leave New York City where the other British army was and could march out. So that sort of fine minuet as it was, was worked out between the two of them. And of course, that was the great victory. Actually at Yorktown, there were more French troops on the ground than there were American troops. And that doesn't, that's not counting the Navy. So it took that coordination, then leap forward to the Constitutional Convention all the key compromise, compromises that made it work. Well, first they worked together to draft the Virginia plan. They were in the room along with Madison and others drafting the Virginia plan, some of it at Franklin's house. Um, and then the compromises such as the, the um, compromise of the uh, Senate having two members from each state and the House being popularly elected. The Virginia plan, both the House and the Senate were proportionally represented. Um, that's what both of them wanted, but the, that wasn't going to work. The small states wanted representation in the right. Senate, um, equal representation, and they worked out the compromise, um, and then they pushed it through. And so you can see them sort of working hand in glove to get the um, final. They disagreed on some things. Uh, Washington wanted a more powerful presidency because he knew he was going to get it. Franklin was too old. Washington, Franklin believed in a very weak presidency, would have preferred to have a, um, a parliamentary sort of democracy. That was his vision. But, you know, they worked together to work out something that could get passed. And everyone agrees, without the two of them, it wouldn't have been done. Wow. Well, what, what were there, if we look from the perspective of, uh, of our time today and, you know, all the taking into account all the um, political correctness, if that's the right word to use. What were their individual legacies from our perspective today, as, as you see it, as you see it today, their individual legacies? Well, there's this, um, Franklin has a um, sort of, he, he had so many, areas um, that he was involved in. So um, his way to wealth, his, his moral philosophy, um, which um, drew on Spinoza, among others, as a Jewish roots of his practical philosophy, um, that has survived. And you have many Americans throughout, I mean, whether it be, um, you know, leading prominent 
business leaders will say their inspiration was Ben Franklin's practical um, way of operating. There, he's um, he's a hero who who um, shows you. Well, his book was called as, as a way to wealth. So that's always been true. His um, his resourcefulness, his tinkering, his practicality, um, his um, sort of um, uh, practical sense of, of philosophy and religion, his his wit and writing style, those all survive along with his, you know, example as a as a uh, as a political leader who achieves achieves compromise. We less remember his leading role as an abolitionist and, and those activities, where Washington survives as literally the father of the country in the sense that he um, provided a model of stable leadership, of, of, of creative leadership in the revolution, of pulling things like Washington's Crossing, going across the Delaware, or liberating Boston, or um, by bringing in the cannons from Ticonderoga, or or um, the um, Yorktown, and he survives as as that sense is uh, he's always regarded as one of the great presidents, um, sort of in a category all by himself with Lincoln and Roosevelt, and and no one else getting close. And so in that sorts of leadership, but he would have more of a problem with political correctness, if, as a term you used, in the sense that he was a slaveholder. And that, um, that today um, makes his legacy somewhat more complex. I think in general, um, Americans balance that out with his his other attributes. But just like Jefferson, who also had many attributes, but also was a lifelong slaveholder, um, that remains an issue, which, of course, Franklin, as an abolitionist and as the president of the first abolitionist society in America, um, something, uh, an issue he doesn't have to have to redress. His only issue in that respect was um, one really remarkable, I mean, he had so many, he was such an influential and popular writer and he wrote so much, but one of his very famous and very, very creative works was an essay in in, uh, 1751, where he correctly predicted the dynamical population growth of America and is known as an important piece of uh, how you use statistics to look into the future. But it also included a screed against Germans in America, um, and that leading to the only time he was ever defeated for election, he, the Germans came. A German vote came out against him, and um, he just didn't think so. It would be a little bit of an anti-immigration screed. He never thought the Germans would properly. Um, 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 well, he. I think a key line in it, he said. The Germans will end up Germanizing us rather than us anglifying them, and so that certainly reflected a um, sort of an anti-immigration streak in him, uh, which is interesting. Of course, he goes on to say, "Why not leave America to the beautiful white and red Native Americans?" Which was very progressive. He was the first publisher of Native American literature, 
and he was an enormous admirer of Native Americans in um, and um, negotiated with them, worked very closely with them. So, whereas Washington, of course, his 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 name, he had spent a lot of time on the frontier, and his name translated to something like village burner or whatever. He was he he sent when he was president, he sent army after army into the frontier to. Um, to remove the Native Americans. So both with Native Americans and with uh, African-American slavery, uh, Franklin's a bit of a hero and Washington's the opposite. 